This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Sixth of September. I'm Guy Johnson in London, Alex Steele over in New York. You are now listening to The Cable. It has been a busy day for The Cable. Uh, it is absolutely front and centre right now. Uh, we've had a statement within the last few minutes from the Bank of England, Alex. Uh, we've seen significant gyrations uh, in the uh, the sterling rate today. Uh, UK 30-year, the biggest sell-off I think ever seen today. Uh, it has been a day of uh, it's been a day of extreme tension mm-hmm. here in the UK. Um, yeah, and and over here in in the U.S., I just can't. I'm still sort of stuttering around the statement from the BOE, which was just a big fat nothing. And then since then, you, you have had equity markets here start to roll over. Yields push a touch higher. The dollar push a touch higher. I mean, this is basically like dropping everything until uh, until November third. Absolutely, that's, I, that's so a the long time pound. away. So we got as low as 103 a little bit earlier on. We're now trading at 106.95 on the cable rate. We're down by around 1.5% at the moment. Um, but the action has been in the foreign exchange markets today and in the bond market, less in equities, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest. You have seen some of the house builders coming under a little bit of pressure. Uh, names like Taylor Wimpery have been down fairly sharply today on an expectation that the Bank of England would be forcing rates higher. Uh, but we were hearing from Charles Goodhart a little bit earlier on, former MPC member. He was basically saying this bank can either fight the Treasury uh, and raise rates and basically undermine the growth push that the new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng is pushing through, or it can basically acquiesce and roll over. And I asked him whether or not we have an independent central bank still, um, and, and he wasn't entirely convinced that we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how we make the case that we do, maybe technically, but um, I think the it's idea not, is that whatever the BOE does... the same does, way that the ECB is. No, and I think that the idea also is whatever the BOE does, even if they do nothing until November 3rd, won't be enough. The market just will keep pushing them. So if they went 100 bips like this week right now, the market would just keep pushing for more and more, that there wouldn't be any solution uh, to this problem. Yeah. So what is the bank to do? What is a bank to do with this kind of environment? Let's try and kick it around and get some answers uh, to uh, to ultimately uh, what is happening here. Uh, Philip Aldrich, Bloomberg News, uh, UK financial eco and BOE reporter, and John Authors uh, joining us now. Um, the, the news has shifted, gentlemen, over the last hour or so, which is why I'm going to push on to this conversation. Philip, what did you make of the Bank of England statement? Oh, it's a holding statement, isn't it? I mean, they're saying, wait until November. We're not going to panic. Um, And uh, it it came with the Chancellor also saying that he was going to publish a full set of forecasts on November the 23rd, um, which would be uh, audited by the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is the fiscal watchdog here. Um, And and so uh, the fact that it's going to be November 23rd is also quite striking because in an interview with the FT, he suggested just on Friday, he just suggested it would be it would be early next year. So there's, this looks like it was a joint effort to try and stabilise things because markets are really worried about public finances getting out of control mm-hmm. and then and then the interest rate um, commitment from the Bank of England. So you know they're, they're obviously 
teaming up and saying we are going to have some kind of public finance restraint and we are going to have interest rates set independently. That That's clearly the objective of this yeah, statement. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, did it work? Uh, I'm, I'm particularly it looking... Didn't. It didn't. I mean, it didn't immediately, did it? Because sterling fell against the dollar right. again. Well, it lost it lost ground again. But it didn't... It, you know, I suppose it didn't crash back to levels at the start of the day. And Okay, fair. When, when there was arguably thinner liquidity. Um, I'm just pointing to the Financial Times. So they took the statement from... Um, uh, the Bank of England. And at the end of the statement, they have whatever it takes, which is Mario Draghi's famous line that it, um, that he basically saved the euro. And then they um, ran a line through it takes. So it's a statement and it's whatever. And that I feel is a very appropriate way uh, to describe what the BOE didn't do. Um, John Authors, your feelings? Yes. Oh, well, that's a, that's a, I hadn't seen that, but my uh, my old colleagues at the FT are obviously on good form. That's, uh, that's <laughs> an appropriate way to handle it. Um, I think the, the critical issue is that um, history gives us a very clear guide, which I tried to write about earlier. We've had two budgets like this in the last half century when a Conservative Chancellor has really cut taxes in a very big way, in a big dash for growth, which was um, uh, Anthony Barber in 72 and Nigel Lawson in 88. And the rise in the bank rate that, that gets triggered both of those times was extraordinary. The, 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 uh, the banks, uh, the Bank of England's central target rate. Now, the critical point about that is that the Bank of England wasn't independent on either of those occasions. And the Chancellor who had done the, uh, the big tax giveaway then had to, um, then had to, uh, to hike the rates. So I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> even even if the bank is not functionally independent at yep. this point, and I agree we're getting there, it's going to have to break and raise rates at some point, probably before November. Philip, do you, th- do you think independence is now seriously being questioned here? If they do nothing, like to John's point, are we getting to that point? Do you think we are starting to approach that moment where... I, theoretically, this could be quite inflationary. Theoretically, we've got a problem with the currency. I, but if the bank doesn't react to it, doesn't react to market pressure, then the question will have to be asked: Are they reacting to pressure from the treasury? I, I'm a bit, I'm a bit more skeptical about that. I think you know they can, they can, they can try and hold hold the line until November, and then have a and then have a strong a strong move in November. I, I, I you know. If if they move before then, the signal is, you know, it is quite it is quite panicky, and I, I don't necessarily think that's going to help. Well, it's going to help matters, but mm. you know, obviously there is a lot of pressure on. There is going to be a lot of pressure on the bank to sort of acquiesce to what the the, the treasury needs. So it's going to be the the most challenging of challenging times in terms of you know, reinforcing their independence. I mean, I hear you, Philip, but I mean. Shouldn't they be panicking like a little bit? I mean, this is an enormous amount of money that completely surprised everything. That's going to aggravate, in many senses, inequality. And you had the chancellor on TV over the weekend basically saying, this is just the beginning. Like, that feels like a panicking moment. Well, well, the I mean, they are going to have to, they're going to do an assessment of, like, the, the, the impact. I mean, the... 
what was quite striking is that the is the bank was briefed on you know what was going to be in the budget before budget day at the time of the yeah. rate decision and so they knew what was coming in fact basically we all knew what was coming the little bits that we didn't know were coming were the tax rises tax cuts for the for the richest people and some stamp duty cuts what was what was surprising is that they just there was just nothing in there on on fiscal restraint and it was kind of arrogant by the treasury to think that they could just go up against the markets and say you know you guys worry about you know fiscal sustainability but we don't care about it and we don't care what you think and and you know the credibility of the government has been has basically been hit by their actions um and it's going to be require a combination of both the treasury and the bank of england to restore that credibility over the next over this next period and, and panicking i don't know whether that helps credibility john okay we'll come back to the issue of, of panicking yeah. and credibility in a moment but but to philip's point about the fact that if the bank was briefed on what the treasury was going to announce and what the chancellor was going to announce beforehand and only raised by 50 basis points doesn't that suggest that maybe maybe they maybe the tone is the critical factor here but maybe doesn't that imply that the bank misread the market reaction and is in some ways not in touch particularly with with just how febrile these markets are that certainly is the implication uh, i mean it's very good if, if they really my understanding was that the you know, while, while we all knew in, in outline that he was going to go for it, that it was going to be a go-for-growth budget, my understanding was that all the detail wasn't before them when they made hmm. when they made their decision. But but I am not a reporter on that. If they really did know what exactly what Quarting was going to say, I think the uh, the six um, governors who who uh, who uh, voted for less than a seventy-five bips rise were, were making a a strange pull. I would have thought the case for a hundred bits rise if they knew this was mm-hmm. coming down the pipe were, was very strong, um, yeah. and, it, and nobody voted for that. And, and then twenty-five then seems bananas uh, that that would actually be have been on the table with this uh, fiscal event. Um, uh, John, yeah. you know, you mentioned it earlier, but your column overnight was sort of looking back at history um, and different tax cuts, and then what the resulting um, implication was. So, so knowing that. What was your assessment as to how this plays out over the next couple of years? Well, um, the, Edward Heath lost the general election within two years of the Barber budget. And Margaret Thatcher lost her job being deposed by her party not much more than two years after the Lawson budget. Um, what is very dangerous for the Conservatives in this in Britain is to lose the sense that they're the ones you can actually trust with your money. That's the big thing they have over Labour. Whenever Conservatives mess up the economy, and this looks like it could be a big embarrassment for them, they generally lose the next election. Uh, so I think that the, the single greatest point here, and, and, and yeah, the Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are, are politicians as well as economic managers. They've somehow or other got to uh, rebuild their credibility uh, 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 with the voters. Um, I think um, that this was in many ways a gambler's play. We're going to lose in 24 if we are, if we do the right thing and steadily bring things under control over the next two years. We might just win in 24 if we go for growth and get away with it. And if things go wrong, we were going to lose anyway. That, I think, is what they are trying to do, that they have decided they are going to go for this recklessness path because any other path isn't going to get them back into office again. 
I, I don't greatly respect it, and it's possible I'm wrong about that, in which case I yeah. apologise to them, but that's what it seems to me is going on. OK, to, the, to that point, Philip, what was missing from the Chancellor's statement if they want to deliver growth? Cutting taxes is one thing. Um, it, it puts money back into people's pockets uh, and it allows them to, to go out and spend that uh, and generate growth. But in the UK, there is there is a need. The Chancellor talks a lot about supply-side reform, but actually, yeah. in reality, didn't announce any. Yeah, exactly. The, there, was the, there was that missing. There was just... He, he, there was bold statements on we, we are, there are these supply side reforms, and he said no, he set out planning, planning uh, reforms. There's, he, he, there's a list of forty infrastructure projects that they want to get um, uh, yep. speeded up and everything, but there wasn't any detail on how that would be delivered. So, you, so this growth really looks aspirational. And then on on sort of fiscal sustainability, he said, don't worry, you know, we're going to have a medium term fiscal plan, but you've got to wait like four months until I tell you about it. Um, uh, and and there was just a couple of lines which said you know this will involve um, there will be a degree of spending restraint right and this is and that was the sum total of the sort of you know everything was hitched on the position seemed to be hitched on trust that the Tory party will be um, careful with the public finances would, would the market relax a, if we start to get those details if so there are, so there are so he so part of the chancellor statement today yeah. is to set, is to clarify and he has he did say it a bit over exactly. the subsequent days that there will be more detail in terms of um, you know the planning reforms. Uh, and sort of financial deregulation and all these kind of stuff, all these supply side issues which they've been talking mm-hmm. about. Um, at the same time, this is a fun headline, guys. Uh, you have Raphael Bostic uh, is speaking right now um, at a virtual event, and he says the UK tax cut proposals have increased uncertainty and they don't help global recession odds and global counterparts. We talk to them all the time. I mean, when you have the Fed talking about the UK tax cut proposal, I mean, that just feels like a really um, strong uh, verbal pushback um, from the Fed. Um, John, what do you think? That's a very unusual step for, for central banks to criti- criticise each other that directly. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've got to look at it in part because the Fed is reasonably uh, unpopular in the rest of the world because yeah. of its policies have led to a strong dollar. That said, if Bostic says that, uh, I think he's right. Uh, and this is you know, deep irresponsibility, which the rest of the financial communities uh, or the global community is entitled to be angry about. One other possibility, just just to mention for what what the government might conceivably do, I certainly agree that more concrete, believable details about how they're going to save some money would help a lot. The other thing is how regressive this budget was, was truly shocking. And again, I, I covered this in my... Um, uh, in my column, both you know, the, the Barber budget, which was the only previous bigger tax giveaway in one budget, was all done by raising thresholds, which is uh, not regressive at all. Um, whether there's a way to tinker and with, uh, with uh, the progressivity of this so that it doesn't seem like quite such a finger in the eye of the yeah. working class, that is a possibility to me as well. But that's more of a political than a than a economic issue, but it would also affect international confidence. The Labour Party are meeting in Liverpool. Be interesting to see what ultimately comes out of that conference, whether or not the the Labour Party can use this to their advantage. But at the moment, again, no details in the Labour Party, which is which is I think frustrating a lot of people. Interesting that Bostic isn't just criticising another central bank; he's criticising 
another government. Fiscal policy is, of yeah. another government. Bananas. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, Philip Aldrich, John Authors, uh, both of you, thank you very much. Indeed, we'll continue to monitor events overnight. Uh, the cable rate back under pressure. Up next, we'll turn our attention to this weekend's Italian election. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. If we will be called to govern this country, we will do it for all Italians, for everybody, with the goal of uniting this people, of stressing what unites rather than what divides. Because the great goal that we have always given ourselves in life as a political force was to ensure that Italians could once again be proud to be Italian, be proud to wave the tricolor flag. This is our task, and it is the one that we will fulfill if we are called upon to govern this nation. An English translation of the Italian that came from Giorgia Maloney, the new Italian leader. She will shortly become Italy's first ever female prime minister. A historic weekend for Italy. We now start to get the reaction from financial markets. Italian German 10-year yields blowing out the spread between the two, blowing out to the widest since May 2020. Uh, we're now trading at circa 244 basis points, as I say, uh, a wide, the widest we've seen since May 2020. Uh, a historic election, an election that has seen Italy lurch to the right. We now have a centre-right government. Critical posts will be filled over the next few days. Um, we need to find out who the country's finance minister will be. The markets are on tenterhooks. Let's go to Rome now for some uh, great coverage of what is happening here with Bloomberg's Maria Tadeo. Maria, as, as the markets, as the country, as the world begins to digest uh, the scale of the victory here, can you just talk us through what it means for Italy? Well, to me, it's funny when you played uh, that soundbite in which he went, if we get called upon to form a government, if I get given this honor, in reality, she knows uh, she will get the mandate. Her victory is, is, there's no way to argue against it. She had an incredible result. Uh, She has come to dominate the Italian political landscape. She dominates the right. We can talk about the ins and outs of the uh, coalition, but she really dominates both uh, Matteo Salvini and Silvio Berlusconi, which is funny. Also, when you look at the optics, this is a woman that essentially now dominates the two alpha males, uh, which perhaps tells you a lot, too, about the way that Italian society works. You know, it's very macho bravado, but in the mm-hmm. end, it's women that really run a lot of this. And then uh, you mentioned what, to me, is the key point now. Uh, the government is moving away from Mario Draghi. That is over now. You take a turn to the right. But the question is, who will be the finance minister and what kind of relationship will he or she have with European institutions? Mm -hmm. To me, that is the key. If you get someone who is seen as business-friendly, who is not going to create problems in Brussels, who's going to work alongside the European institutions, in fact, you know, you could be in for a very timid response. If she does go for someone who's perceived as potentially a troublemaker, then Italy is going to have a problem. So, Maria, all the analyst notes that I read very much took the tone that, that you have, that like, yep, this is happening, but there was not an anti-EU, let's get out of the euro conversation during the election campaign. We feel like she'll be more reasonable when it comes to working uh, with other European nations, etc. But then you look at the BTP Bund 10-year spread, and you're looking at the widest since May 2020. Do you have a sense 
of why that is from talking to individuals? Well, you know, I, it's funny when I, in fact, during the summer when I worked in, on, on Bloomberg Opinion for a little bit, I was one of the first that actually picked up on this. The fact that this uh, theme of intellect had completely gone, that it is completely misunderstood by international investors, that oftentimes it really is exaggerated. There is no plan uh, to leave the euro. The campaign, the tone in this one was very different to 2018 when there was a lot of ambiguity. Remember, there was a lot of debate as to whether the euro worked or not uh, for Italy and whether potentially uh, they could crash out accidentally or with a secret plan. In this case, there's been none of that. There has been a political debate as to whether or not this is modern fascism or not. We can get into that. It's very muddy waters, but this has been more of a political campaign rather than economic. And I think today the issue here is that the market fully digests. We are now entering a period in which Mario is out. The money from the recovery fund and the European funding will depend on Milani. This is a time in which the country is also facing a huge energy crisis, uh, the economic crisis potentially that could stem from this. And I think it's, it's almost a penny dropped today. But I wouldn't be surprised if actually some of the moves are come down, again, pegged to the finance minister. That will be the key job. If she gets someone who is business-friendly, who's not going to pick up a fight with Brussels, a lot of those jitters could come down. If she indicates clearly, I am not moving away from the path that was laid out and set out by Mario Draghi that will come fears. The issue now, however, is that she is a force of opposition. A lot of people voted for her because they want a clean break from Mario Draghi. And Giorgia Meloni is, is a professional politician. She's worked in politics for 20 years, but she's never had to make a single decision. She's always been either a very junior minister with no real power or in the opposition. So it's right now that it's crunch time, and we don't really know which way she's going to go. You alluded to the fact that there is this debate about how far right she will go. Let's come back to the politics. Um, how close is she to Viktor Orban and how useful a character is he engaging where she could go? Look, I think if she gets uh, very close to Viktor Orban and we see them in Brussels acting as BFFs, that is going to be a problem for Italy. For all the jokes that we make, it's, it's Italy, it's always a mess. Uh, the, the, the Italian politics are so difficult to understand. The reality is, behind the scenes, Italy is a country that really matters in the European circles. It is a founding member of the EU. It is a founding member of the Euro. It is a big NATO member. With uh, Mario Draghi, it really was back at the top table. And just to give you an anecdote, in the European institutions, the UK used to have their press conference and their, their working areas very close to Germany and France. When the UK left, they gave that room to Italy, and that signified that the country had escalated to the big powers. If she moves away from Berlin and Paris and gets close to Poland, Orban, and so on, this is going to be problematic for Italy. And the reality is, whether she likes it or not, she needs to have a good working mm -hmm. relationship with Macron, and she needs a good working relationship with the Germans. Mm -hmm. Maria, really appreciate it. Great reporting today. Maria Tadeo uh, joining us from Bloomberg. I should point out, you're looking at 10-year BTPs now up 21 basis points uh, on the day. Uh, Germany up nine. The sell-off in the bond market picking up some steam here. Um, United States looking at 10-year yields up by 15 basis points. We're going to go back to the markets next and break down everything that we're seeing. Someone's getting really burned. Who is it? This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Okay, we're really picking up some steam to the downside here. It feels like a couple things are going on. One, you had European markets close, and then you also got uh, the statement from the Bank of England basically saying that we're not going to do anything until November 3rd, but we are standing ready to get inflation down to 2%. Markets didn't like that, and the result was that a higher dollar ensued. You also had the sell-off in bond market picking up steam, but as European markets were closed, it does now seem like a majority of the selling is now headed to the U.S. The S&P's off by a tenth of 1%, Dow's off by 1%, the Nasdaq off by four tenths. Um, you're looking at flying gil- uh, yields now in the U.S., 16 basis points in the seven-year, albeit that's like nothing compared to what we're seeing in the U.K. That's like pennies, basically, compared to the enormous moves uh, that we're seeing in the gilt market. Um, Guy, I feel like the question we were kicking around this morning, is this like a broken market? I mean, is this what we're looking at? Is this the beginning of things breaking and spreading? So, I we had this discussion a little earlier, and I think we need to define the question a little bit more. Maybe that was our, our mistake a little earlier. The market is functioning. It is doing what it's yes. doing. The plumbing is working. So it's not a the, – the market is not broken. But maybe sentiment is starting to break. And I think that's probably the difference. Um, I think sentiment is certainly starting to crack. Last week was brutal for investors uh, in multi- multiple markets. And this week is turning out already – to be no exception, um, we are therefore we are therefore starting to see serious fear. I think beginning to emerge. We are we're not there yet. We're, we're, this isn't kind of capitulation. If you take a look at the kind of the usual metrics that define that, but but we are certainly starting to see sentiment break, and I think mm-hmm. that is that is certainly what we're seeing. But the market in terms of the plumbing, and this was the difference between this and 2008, is still functioning. Yes. Although, you have to, I have to really question what the liquidity is like in the gilt market. Like how, That's true. So, 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 yeah, so there is that problem. So it does feel like maybe there is some seizing up in the UK versus the rest of the market, to make that distinction. Yeah. The, the UK feels discombobulated. The UK feels like it is a market that is, that is struggling to deliver an accurate price signal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really hard to, to price this situation. And I think, I think the gilt market is, is trying to send a message, but, but the pricing around is the gilt market. What, what is the gilt market pricing here? I'm, I'm struggling to get my arms yeah. around. Well, let's ask someone who may know the answer to all these things, Cameron Christ, shall we? Um, he writes a macu- uh, macro man column. He also writes for MLive. He's a podcast as well. Um, Cameron, w- you know, you sort of helped ignite this conversation that we had earlier um, in our editorial meeting about things breaking. Um, w- is the UK market breaking, and is that going to spread somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think it is in, in the sense that um, it's very, very difficult to transfer risk in the mar- using the market mechanism. I mean, the, the, the ability or the willingness to warehouse risk is nil. Uh, and so it's very, very difficult to, as Guy alluded to, uh, to distill signals from the prices that one observes on the screen because it's not rational uh, it's not a rational view underpinning the moves that you see it's someone perhaps trading and then whoever they trade with scrambling to lay off the risk 
Uh, I mean, it's not normal to see what Sterling has done in the currency market today. It's not normal to see, uh, I mean, cranky. You know, we've had... You just say cranky? I said cranky. Amazing. Fantastic. (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, we've had portions of the short-term interest rate market in the U.K., the Estonia market, up 80 basis points. Uh, and And then correct... You know, yields correct lower by thirty, and now they're up another fifteen twenty. It's, 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 it's amazing. Um, and the headlines uh, are starting to swirl, or the the stories are starting to swirl about certain UK mortgage lenders pulling out of the market temporarily, while they figure out what the hell they're going to do. Um, now, to me, when you have facilitators of credit disengaging. That's kind of the definition of a broken market. You know, the intermediation of credit from financial markets to the consumer on the mortgage side is uh, is not functioning properly at the moment, uh, or is is about to quit functioning as as you know once lenders sort of draw down on their pool of liquidity, and then they have to re- you know refresh their liquidity pools at the new higher rate levels. I mean, I you know you've probably seen the charts by now about the uh, the rollover schedule of of variable rate uh, or you know temporarily fixed rate UK mortgages that that we're going to see over the next sort of fifteen months and it's a horror show. So, what happens next then is what I think a lot of people are trying to figure out. If, if this is a a market that is struggling to function. There are going to be losers in that now. Mortgage mortgage borrowers may be one of them, but are there more systemic issues within the market that we should be concerned about? Well, I think there's always the sort of the 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 iceberg issue, which is a lot of times what you can see visible, uh, distress that, that's visible is is not necessarily masking, but is there's a concomitant hidden risk that's much larger that you that you can't see because it's it's under the surface, so to speak. So, uh, I mean, for sure, any risk model, um, any portfolio that has UK assets in it, the risk models are going off like bonfire night fireworks, right? Um, because the realized volatility of everything has shot up. The quote-unquote risk-free rate mm-hmm. has shot up. Although I think you're going to struggle to find anyone who would consider guilt risk-free at the moment, oh, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and what that means is that for a given nominal position size, the actual investment risk you're taking has has suddenly skyrocketed. Um, and if you are targeting a given level of risk in your portfolio, obviously you have to reduce the nominal position size, which just exacerbates the problem. Exactly. Or if you're sitting um, on a money losing position in UK assets, uh, you know if you've been—I um, don't know if anyone has—but if you've been sitting there long gilts or you tried to buy the dip on Friday, well, all of a sudden you know you just you just weren't another big loss. And that naturally uh, encourages you to reduce risk throughout your portfolio. Um, and that's particularly the case given the poor liquidity, mm-hmm. trading liquidity that we, you know, we've been alluded to, which, yes, it's, it's, it's at its nadir in the U.K., but clearly trading liquidity in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan, in EM, it's pretty terrible everywhere. So how does this – I'm trying to understand who's going to lose serious money – 
irrelevant to the actual level of where we're trading, the speed to which assets across the border re-rating, and obviously exacerbating certain assets, like you were mentioning, because of the illiquidity. Like, if I'm a bank, like, how am I revisiting my VAR? Like, if I'm a hedge fund, how do I need to reimagine what my risk level looks like? I mean, is that conversation happening right now? Oh, yeah. And that's what I was just alluding to, is... Risk managers everywhere, uh, you know, they, they push the button and the, and the model says, holy cow. But how quickly uh, do they redeploy funds or change what they're holding? Like, how, are, are we already seeing the ramifica- the implication of that unfolding? Um, perhaps to a degree. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably moved a little too quickly to say that there's been a wholesale, a wholesale shift. But, like, for example, when I um, worked at a hedge fund, I ran a portfolio at a hedge fund, I would get a risk report every day that said, here's your VAR. And so maybe, and these numbers are, are, are going to sound arbitrary, and they are arbitrary, but, you know, um, take it for what it is. Say, say I, my portfolio was supposed to have a VAR target of 70, an, over, an average overnight VAR target of 70 basis points. Just take that as a target, mm-hmm. right? Um, and maybe I have a limit of 125. Um, so that's the maximum yep. risk that I can take. Well, maybe I was running 75 basis points of VAR, going, you know, a week ago. Without changing any positions, all of a sudden, maybe my, you know, I've got a UK-centric portfolio. Well, all of a sudden, maybe my VAR is now 115 or 120. Um, because typically, these models, we use a sort of a trailing one-year volatility calculation. Um, and the, the value, you know, certainly the volatility of the gilt market, of the Sonia market, of the sterling currency market, has skyrocketed. I mean, this is this is. I mean, this is certainly in the gilt market. You, should, you know, yep. uh, we haven't seen anything like this uh, in in decades, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even even when they jacked rates up uh, uh, on Black Wednesday, we didn't see these kind of daily moves in two year gilts or five year gilts. Um, it's the magnitude is is off, literally off the charts. Yeah. Um, and and that Tam, means, yeah. If the market questions the independence of the central bank, what does that look like? Um, it looks like an emerging market. I mean, in extremis. Yeah. I mean, Tur- Turkey is kind of the poster child for that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, the jokes. We all have lots of jokes. Uh, you know about the Great British peso and everything. Uh, I mean, the, the UK is not an emerging market. <laughs> Um, it might st- be starting to superficially resemble one. Um, because- but, if, but if the central bank, if the central, the, the, the chancellor has just announced a growth strategy, which could be symmetrically countered by the Bank of England aggressively raising rates. Yes. The Bank of England is under pressure to raise rates in order to stabilise the currency markets and the bond markets, or at least bring them back into kind of kilter. If it doesn't do that, effectively it's acquiescing to the Treasury's desire to have growth at the expense of, of the other two issues. The market presumably will not take that well. Well, I, I, could, I would argue that, in a sense, the, the financial market has done the tightening for, for the yep. Bank of England. Uh, I mean, I, I think, it, I mean, taking a snapshot of where we are now versus where we were, say, a week ago, and if yep. I were to ask 100 economists, what is your prognosis for growth in the UK economy? over the next year based on where everything is right now, 
I would suggest to you that forecasts will be lower now than they were immediately before this growth package was announced because the negative repercussions of the repricing of market interest rates is much more significant, I think, than the growth positive aspects of the, um, you know, of, of of the tax cuts. So in a sense... The Bank of England, I think, is correct not to get panicked into uh, a, a rate hike when, you know, as discussed, the implications for the rise in gilt yields on the mortgage market is going to be very significant. I mean, it's, it essentially, Quasi has delivered income tax cuts, and uh, he's also delivered mortgage, essentially with a, a tax on mortgages. Um, uh, the way the UK market is structured. So, and I, uh, you know, I haven't run the numbers, but I got to think that, you know, given that two-year kill yields are up 100 basis points plus wow. in two days, that that the implication of that is going to be a heck of a lot more than um, than a moderate... Uh, well, the, well, the tax cuts don't kick in until next year, so... Well, yeah, that so. too, right? Um, and, but obviously the mortgage rates will kick in whenever you have to... To roll over a mortgage. I mean, there is a there is another option for the Bank of England, which is pretty obvious from my perspective, which is just to to punt on uh, QT, right? Because mm-hmm. they've announced that they're going to start selling gilts next quarter. It's only eight point seven billion uh, pounds, which you know maybe in the old days that was real money, but these days it's peanuts, right? Um, but from a symbolic perspective. Uh, I think it would probably be a good idea for the for the central bank to not be hitting bids in the gilt market when the DMO is going to be doing the same thing. Yeah, um, Cameron. Look, we really appreciate it. Um, it's it's honestly, I feel like I want to go back. I'm a terrible writer, but someone should go back and write the book on this in uh, ten years and see what they say. Cameron, thanks a lot, Cameron Kreis, uh of M Live as well as Macro Man. Um, so, guy, I. I feel like, how do we find direction from here? And, you know, we were talking about VAR models and such, and, and I can't help escape the fact that we're very close to the end of the third quarter with only a few more months to go to the end of the year. And then yep. the pressure that's going to put on asset managers, on hedge funds, on all the funds to be able to deliver the kind of returns and how that's going to superficially uh, change up asset prices. Do you think people are looking for returns anymore? Or do you think they're just looking for not losing money. I think if you're a pension fund and you promised your 7% return, you're still looking for returns and now you're stuck with liquid assets and private equity assets you can't get out of. That's a real problem. It's a real problem. It's going to be a real challenge. Not losing money at the moment is probably going to represent significant outperformance. Um, How long this period lasts for, we'll wait and see. More on central banks next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio, 48 minutes past the hour, around, well, just over an hour ago, um, circa 4.30 here in the UK. We've got a coordinated, what appeared to be a coordinated set of statements uh, from the Treasury and the Bank of England designed to calm markets. Ostensibly, it may look as if the, uh, the Bank and the Treasury are on the same page, acting in coordination to try and make sure that the markets don't react in the way that they did earlier on today, setting sterling down uh, to 103 on the cable rate. Jamie Rush is uh, Bloomberg's chief European economist and joins me now here in the studio. There is much to talk about when it comes to European central banks um, and how global central banks are working at the moment. But let's start with the UK because it feels the correct place to start today. Um, 
are the Treasury and the Bank of England on the same page? Um, well, I think they've 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 they're on a collision course, and we've we've seen that uh, in in the past, you know, few days. The the Treasury has massively loosened fiscal policy at a time when the economy is already overheating, the labour market's very tight, and the Bank of England is under pressure to do a lot already to try and bring that under control. Um, and so we've already seen that the bank has, has, has lifted interest rates. It's going to do so again. And now the, the problem is just getting harder. And actually, the market reaction really is, is one of the reasons that the bank is going to have to do more because the, the pound has fallen in response to the government's uh, fiscal package. Um, that's raised the inflation problem. And it's meant that the bank's going to have to do quite a bit more. So, um, Rafael Bastic was speaking just about, I don't know, half an hour ago or something, and he said the UK tax cut proposal have, has, have increased, proposals have increased uncertainty. UK tax cut proposals don't help global recession odds, and that we talk regularly with global counterparts. What's your reaction to a governor at the Fed basically throwing a lot of shade and saying the UK proposals is not a good idea on a government? I mean, that to me was pretty stark. Uh, well, it's you know we live in a fairly quiet corner of the world, and so when Fed officials start saying <laughs> your policy is uh, is wrong, and it, you know so the eye of Sauron swung round to to London, you know it's not a good thing. Um, and you know that I think that, that really the fact that the world is sitting up and taking notice of UK fiscal policy is a serious problem. I mean, this isn't the you know if the market reaction has been that adverse that people are taking notice across the Atlantic. Um, why, why, didn't, why didn't the Bank of England, which in theory is in touch with market participants and would have been briefed on the Treasury's plan, the, the UK Treasury's plan, not recognise that these are incredibly febrile markets and as a result of which you may get a, a, an outsized reaction? <laughs> I, I think so. Actually, and the bigger question for me, and oh yeah, that's a fair one, um, but Thank the big question for me <laughs> is why didn't markets see this coming? I mean, every aspect... Yeah of the government's policy was trailed well before, well in advance. The only thing that was unknown to markets before it was put, the, the statement was made was a, a cut to income taxes for very, very high earners, which doesn't really cost very much money at all. That's the only thing that was, was unknown. Tone, then. I think it, I think a huge amount of it was tone. And I think the, the, and actually that particular measure, even though it cost nothing pretty much, it just speaks to the, the problem the government has, which is, one of perceptions of competence. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to give tax cuts to the very richest when it is all the other people are suffering in society, that is a tone-deaf policy which markets don't like the sound of. So it, it makes it hard for me to then think that there's any central bank that has credibility except for the Fed. And even that, some would say, is a bit laughable. Um, I mean, so I think this, the Bank of England is, um, is, is going to carry on with hikes. It's now going to do a bigger hike than it otherwise would have done in November. Yeah, in we like six weeks, points. seven weeks. Yeah, so they're going to retreat into their shell for six weeks and hope that this market storm blows over. But they are now on the hook to do a lot more just to keep sterling where it is now. How does that... So if I'm at the Treasury and I've just announced a massive growth policy... You should definitely go on vacation. Two and a half percent. We'll park the vacation. So I, I, want, I, want, I want growth. I'm doing this for growth. I'm going to announce some supply-side reforms further down the road. But, but ultimately, I, I want growth. And then I've got, as you say, a Treasury that is... Uh, the, I've got a Bank of England that's going to be hiking rates, which is going to dilute or destroy some of that positive work I'm trying to do on the economy. As you say, that's a collision course. Do you think there's a danger that the Bank of England pulls its punches here? and doesn't deliver and if it doesn't 
what signal does that send? I I think they they will do they will do it. I think they will hike rates a lot. I think they will probably now cause the UK to to slip into a recession. I think that's now inc- probably the, the most likely. The opposite outcome. of what Kwasi Kwarteng is is talking about. Yeah, I mean, th- th- let's, but let's face it: the policies that he announced weren't really going for growth. They were going for redistribution. There's no way you can make a tax cut to the very top members of, of yeah. society and expect to deliver growth because these people save it. So it's yeah, not really not going to down economics. There's no trickle, yeah. There's no effect here, and that's been proven time and again, and is the result of decades of research into U.S. tax cuts. So I don't think there's any question of that. Um, it's ne- the OBR. One reason they haven't presumably been invited to pass judgment on Kwarteng's policies is that they would have reached the same conclusion that mm-hmm. the package of measures is not enough to raise growth. I think they're doing that November 23rd. So I'm super glad that we have a date two months out for that moment. Um, if I'm working at the Fed, am I picking up a phone to Andrew Bailey right now, or is Andrew Bailey picking up a phone to me? Um, I mean, I th- the the time for that probably was back when when the the it was dollar strength that was the main reason that the the pound was was falling. Um, I don't think there's anything that the you know, that the Fed or the Bank of England can do in co- in, in coordination. Uh, to, to change any of the outcomes here. I and mean, we all know that when it comes to FX interventions, they work best when everybody globally is facing a, a common problem and that there is something to be tackled. Uh, that's not what we see here. What we see here is a domestic problem for the UK, and that's not something that can be tackled with, uh, with intervention. I just want to get the rate up just so I know exactly what I'm doing here. Um, the UK two-year is currently at 4.5. Oh, God. Does the bank need that's to crazy. raise to that kind of rate? or somewhere close to it to square the circle? So raising interest rates to that level, and I think the, the market's pricing a peak rate of about 5%, is enough that will cause significant problems in the UK housing market. It will mm-hmm. cause the slowdown in the UK economy. And that is the, the price. If that is the price for central bank independence and central bank uh, confidence, yep. then that's what they're going to have to pay. All right, Jamie. Jamie Rush, Bloomberg Economics, Chief Europe Economist. Thank you very much. And this is just Monday, guys. Like We just got through one day of this very long week. Um, that wrapped it up for me and Guy. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will see you tomorrow. Have a good night. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.